Welcome to the Well-Settled Podcast from the New York State Bar Association's Dispute Resolution Section. My name is Jeremy Feinberg, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Lisa Courtney, Statewide ADR Coordinator for the New York State Courts. Lisa, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Jeremy, and thank you to the State Bar. Your name is well known to many of our listeners, but perhaps your duties may not be. Can you speak to what you do as Statewide ADR Coordinator and who you work with? So I head the statewide ADR office, which oversees the Community Dispute Resolution Centers program, helps coordinate ADR among the trial courts, as well as um, functions as the education branch of the ADR initiative under our chief judge's presumptive ADR initiative, working with the Judicial Institute, court attorneys, judges, bar members to educate the community about ADR and mediation in particular. Our office also oversees the statewide fee dispute resolution program and other initiatives to enhance uh, utilization and awareness of mediation and other forms of ADR. Now, you mentioned the presumptive ADR program that the chief judge rolled out some time ago now. And it has obviously led to a ramp up of personnel and programs within the state court system. Can you give us a sense of who are some of the managerial people you work with in under the uh, current setup? So under our chief judge's presumptive ADR initiative, which is an integral part of her excellence initiative to reduce backlogs and enhance the effectiveness of uh, our judicial system and the administration of justice, we have a presumptive ADR leadership team comprised of the deputy chief administrative judge for the courts within New York City, George Silver, and he has an ADR counsel, Lisa Denig. She oversees ADR for the courts in New York City. And then outside New York City, under the leadership of Deputy Chief Administrative Judge Caruso, we have Bridget O'Connell for Western New York, the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Judicial District, as well as the Court of Claims, and Joel Coolis, who coordinates the regions of the 3rd, 4th, 9th, and 10th Judicial District. So that's the Albany area, Saratoga Springs area, Westchester and its environs, as well as Long Island. And we form a team together and meet weekly with Dan Weitz, who used to be the statewide ADR coordinator for a very long time, big shoes to fill. And we meet with him weekly to uh, assist in rolling out initiatives and getting on the same page and making sure we're addressing the concerns of the various stakeholders, including members of the bar, law schools, judges, um, and the statewide ADR advisory committee. So there are many rules that touch on ADR in the New York State courts, regardless of whether you're in the 8th Judicial District up in Buffalo or on the tip of Long Island in the 10th Judicial District for Suffolk. I would imagine that some of these have changed recently with the presumptive ADR rules, but today I'm hoping we can zoom in on one particular topic, which is Part 146 of the Chief Administrative Judge's Rules. As I understand it, these govern EDR practitioner qualifications and training. Can you describe what Part 146 is and how it came into being? Part 146 of the Rules of the Chief Administrative Judge, as you noted, guides mediators, 
and neutral evaluators who wish to serve on court rosters. It does not govern arbitrators and it does not govern the community dispute resolution centers, nor does it govern mediators outside uh, on their own who put up a shingle and decide to become mediators. It really is focused on those who seek to become members of a court roster. And they developed and they were they were promulgated in 2008, but they developed in the years preceding 2008, basically codifying existing practice. So before our chief judge's initiative, a local administrative judge might contact the ADR office, speak to my predecessor, Dan White's program in this county. And so Dan would invite them to convene local stakeholders. And through a stakeholder design process, they would come up with a set of rules governing program design. At what point are they going to refer a case to mediation? Uh, for example, who will the neutrals be? At what stage in the litigation? What about discovery? Will it be stayed or not? Will the mediators get compensated? And if so, after what period of time or from the outset? How will cases get into the mediation process? Must an individual judge make a referral or could they be referred in some other way? Can they opt in or must they opt out? So all these various elements of program design, as well as confidentiality, conflicts of interest, what information is allowed to be reported back to the court, timeframes governing the program, all of that would be developed locally. And one of the aspects of local program development was the training and experience that they sought from the mediators who would serve on the court rosters. In the family context, they typically required around 60 hours. That was considered an appropriate number for family and divorce mediation based on experience uh, of other states and that already had mediation programs and the court's own experience wanting to start a program with more seasoned, experienced mediators. Some of those programs required 250 hours of face-to-face -face mediation just to get on the roster. In the commercial context, they tended to want uh, a certain number of years of commercial law experience in addition to 24 hours of basic training and maybe 16 hours of subject matter specific training. So these programs existed throughout the state as a local administrative judge would call my predecessor, Dan Weitz, and seek to set up a program. So in 2008, existing practice was basically codified in Part 146 of the Rules of the Chief Administrative Judge so that we would have uh, a standard notion of what it takes to be a mediator on a court roster, even though they will be administered locally, and even though the decision whether or not to even have a roster would also be locally determined. So let's talk about those rosters, which are the output of Part 146. Where are rosters being used and does it vary greatly depending on where you are in the state? Absolutely. Um, Judges have authority and discretion to set up a roster of private panel mediators. They must have at least 40 hours of experience, the 24 hours of initial experience mentioned in Part 146, the 16 hours of additional, as well as recent experience mediating actual cases, the definition of which 
can be determined locally. So a local judicial district can decide, okay, after you've observed three, you're ready to get on our roster. Or after you've taken a formal apprenticeship, you could join. Uh, so, in, so in addition to those kind of prerequisites, each judicial district has to decide how they feel ADR could be most useful in their judicial district. In some judicial districts, it's an incredibly helpful resource to be able to rely on a seasoned body of ADR practitioners uh, to take cases from the courts. So we see that very actively in Supreme Court New York County. We see that in the small claims court. We see that in Bronx Supreme Court. We see that in the Westchester Surrogate Court. I'm just naming examples. Um, we also have a roster in the, in the Bronx Surrogate Court, the 8th Judicial District, that's Western New York. The 7th started a roster program recently, the 4th Judicial District. Uh, the, and in other judicial districts, they might be using mediation-trained court staff. And there are a number of reasons for this. When we use court staff, there is no cost to the parties. And so in those judicial districts where they have the bandwidth, frankly, to be able to set aside the time for a court staff who is mediation trained to sit with the attorneys and the parties in a dispute and offer this service free of charge that they ought to be setting up a roster. Uh, so in some of the parts, there's been a slower embrace of the roster development process, in part because the bar is not asking for it, and because we as a court system are able to offer this free of charge in a high quality way, encouraging those court staff to take the Part 146 approved training programs, get that experience, and convene with local and regional ADR coordinators to have support for that work. So this presumptive ADR initiative is truly a mix of the private bar uh, functioning as neutrals in, in court-sponsored mediation or, or neutral evaluation programs, as well as the utilization of trained and experienced and trusted court staff who could provide um, some of these services free of charge. So Lisa, let me follow up on all of these different rosters from around the state. Have you encountered any unique challenges or difficulties as different rosters are being rolled out around the state in different places? Are there any kind of demographic or geographical considerations that make it harder or easier in one place? Yes, there are challenges. In some of our more rural communities, there's a lack of access to lawyers in general. And so it could be harder to also find lawyers who could also serve as mediators and then be conflicted out. Um, there are also uh, sentiments that why are we being told to leave the court system? We're really happy working with our judges and their staff we don't necessarily want another kind of cost or, or barrier for our clients. This is working. Why are we trying to change something? So I think our approach has been in those areas where there isn't necessarily a desire or a need or a um, push to utilize mediators on court rosters. Um, first of all, what we have done is grandfathered in, so to speak, the Northern District of New York and Western District of New York's mediators as provisionally uh, um, accepted to our rosters. So this way, the mediators who are already in play in local communities are also 
um, integrated into this initiative. And also what we've done is celebrated that we do have court staff attorneys, unlike other states that may not have court staff supporting judges, we have seasoned, experienced, knowledgeable court staff attorneys, court attorney referees, um, who have taken mediation training. And that is a tremendous resource for the public. So we can't really protest if we are offering a good service, but are able to do it internally free of charge and it's working for everyone. So uh, part of the flexibility we have to have with this initiative is knowing what's going to work where. So for the places where we have fewer lawyers available, has the advent of virtual mediation made it any easier to bring in mediators who aren't quite as local, but still perfectly capable and certified? The advantage of virtual is that if a a judicial district wants to quickly ramp up and start a program with existing mediators, they have access to the directory and they can onboard those mediators as well as from the federal courts. But what often comes up in stakeholder development is why are we using folks from this part of the state? Why don't we train up folks in this part of the state? So it, it really depends on the local judicial district whether or not they have those available community resources. And we also really encourage partnerships with local law schools and community mediation centers. And and they also have done a better job with diversity. So we really celebrate the connections we have uh, with other community partners that can assist us in a wide variety of our goals in offering these services. You've mentioned a few times now that uh, the mediators who sit on these rosters can and often are paid for their work. Is that now a uniform amount per hour? And how does that work in terms of folks who are lucky enough to be on one of these rosters? There's a few different ways that the program works. We don't have a universal formula, so it isn't as though we say provide the first hour free. Thereafter, you could charge whatever you want and the parties have to pay. We do not have that. What we do have is a practice of some initial time free of charge. And that's because we recognize as the court, we can't order someone to go to a service and pay for it and sort of block access to the courthouse door, absent statutory authority to do that. So if you see commercial division rule three, for example, gives judges authority to refer to an uncompensated mediator. It doesn't mean the mediator has to remain uncompensated, but it means that the authority to order is um, is, is to an uncompensated person. So that time frame of free service can really vary court to court. So for example, in the commercial division in New York County, they realized in complex commercial cases, it takes a while to really get into the meat of the case, get the parties acclimated to what the mediation process is, to engage them sufficiently so that they might be interested in continuing. Uh, And so in that community, when they set up that program, they felt that a 90 minutes would not be enough for buy-in. And so offering the three hours free was a way to enhance buy-in. However, if you are allowing the parties to select their own mediator, and we know that when parties select their own mediator, they've already made their first agreement, the advantage of them selecting a mediator is they can pick and pay. If you want the, the hours for free, however, you're going to have to go with who we, the court, 
a sign because we have other interests at stake. Fairness, so that the same folks aren't being asked to give free time every day just because they're getting picked. We also have diversity interests that we know that when the ADR coordinator selects, the ADR coordinator can be mindful of making sure everybody who has been fortunate enough to be accepted to the roster actually gets a case so they don't lose um, you know, faith in being on this roster because they're never getting picked or because the court is not giving them an opportunity to to practice these skills. So there is a dance involved between wanting to honor party choice. So if you are a litigator listening to this, you are always free to come to our court with a mediator already selected on the roster or off the roster. Nobody will ever stop you from that. And in fact, we welcome and encourage that because you've already made your first agreement. However, once the court is involved, you're going to be governed by the court's program and the court's way of assuring fairness is by not sending people to people who've already given free time and to the same people over and over again. So Part 146 has been around since 2008. Has it changed much since it first came into being? And what are some of the newest changes, if so? Great question. The pandemic has really created an incredible excitement, work, and um, energy around quality control and guidance for neutrals seeking to serve on court rosters. So we now have training and curriculum guidelines that govern online training. We want to make sure that you, the consumer of mediation training services, are getting a good experience. So we have guidelines for online training programs geared more to the trainers. Uh, We have... We've always had continuing education as a requirement under Part 146, which is every two years that you're on a roster, you have to take six hours of continuing education. But now we've spelled out what are the types of programming that count towards that. So, for example, if you are in a matrimonial context, have you taken four hours of domestic violence uh, mediation training? So that could be a a prerequisite to serving or continuing to serve on a court roster. We want to make sure. that key topics that may have been covered in a basic training or an advanced training, but 10 years ago um, are still something that um, we're focusing on today before we have mediators dealing directly with the public. We also have guidelines for law school programs. So, you know, Jeremy, you and I were in Carol Liebman's mediation clinic back in, back in law school. And the, the, Law schools can now apply on a fast track for Part 146 status so that their graduates, when they leave law school, don't have to take another mediation training if they've taken one that was approved under the Part 146 Law School and Community Mediation Center track. They can be fast tracked onto a roster if they wish. So that also enhances the diversity of our rosters. It reduces barriers to entry and it gives recent law graduates opportunities to be part of the presumptive ADR initiative. So how far back would that uh, law clinic uh, exception go? Could someone like you or me, if we were not in the court system, be able to take advantage of Carol's excellent work back in the day? Yes. So what what you would say in your mediator application, which we now have online, and that's another exciting development. Um, If you're curious about what are the rosters out there and what can I join when you apply under the universal mediator application, you could actually apply to every single roster, especially now with virtual mediation that you think you're qualified to serve on and that need not be in the county in which you live or feel comfortable traveling to. So it's a really exciting time. Um, But yes, in that application, you would, when you're asked if you've taken a part 146 approved 
improved course. And if not, you're given an opportunity to explain. You could say, I took the course before there was part 146 because I graduated before 2008. And I've since taken, you know, these other programs. I think the application also uh, invites you to share other programming and coursework you may have taken, but you're right. You, you would not need to take the entire 40 hours if you explained what you had taken in the past. Somewhere, I think Carol Liebman is smiling at that. What a wonderful mediation instructor and professor. Um, I do want to come back to training again in a minute, but let me ask you about trying to keep track of all of the people who go through Part 146 for their qualification and training. Is that a role of your office? Is it done on the local level? And how, if at all, is it done? So that's a great question. A lot of people take a Part 146 approved training to become better litigators. They may take the training and say, wow, this was a great course. There's no way I see myself doing this, but it's really given me some great skills. Or they may take the course and say, this was fascinating. I'm really excited to do this. And then they realize it's actually really hard to start up a mediation practice without more. Most people, what they do is they do some either court work, either for the Southern District, the Eastern District, one of our trial court rosters, all of the above. Um, AAA, they kind of go to a variety of sources to try to get experience and and build up um, their background to do this. Um, And so we don't necessarily track people who've taken the course because there are thousands of people who take the course each year who may not become uh, interested even or eligible to serve on our roster. So where we get involved is once people fill out that universal mediator application. So if you fill out a mediator application, we will then channel the application to the correct local or regional ADR coordinator who then reviews it with a local administrative judge in light of a number of factors. One, are we adding more people to the roster at this time? Two, do we have a need for this case type in this context? Three, what are the features that these applicants are bringing um, that we're interested in? They're bringing subject matter expertise of a certain kind, et cetera. So it really is up to the local judicial district and the local ADR coordinator as designee of the local administrative judge to decide whether or not to build a roster, enhance a roster, grow a roster, or right-size a roster so that there isn't a dissatisfaction by the mediators of why am I on this if I'm never getting cases? So, so so it's actually a good thing to kind of be mindful about thinking about what is the court going to do? Are they going to actually use folks who've said they wanted to do this? And that transparency um, is important. So I encourage people to be in touch with their local bar groups or their local, uh, if they're a part of a stakeholder advisory committee, to let our administrative judges know and the case types in which you think it could be useful that uh, mediators are there. And that sometimes helps our judges and judicial leadership uh, know that there's interest in this. So let me flip that around now. Suppose you are a lawyer or maybe an in-house counsel trying to figure out where you wanna bring a case and take advantage of the excellent ADR options that might otherwise be available. Is there any resource under part 146 for that person or those people to search the available neutrals in a jurisdiction where they might be filing? That's a great question. And that was another one of the innovations we're really proud of from the 2020 year. We worked closely with the regional uh, ADR council and coordinators to, and our department of technology who have been incredible this year, court research and technology to develop a database 
um, sort of similar to initially to what the Judicial Institute had, sort of like a catalog of coordinators, and it's become much, much, much more sophisticated. So in the past, people would have to apply to individual court rosters and then have that roster, if they were lucky, published on that local court's website and every now and then updated. Now we have a universal application, which then once the mediators get accepted onto our particular court roster, we then input those mediators who have been approved to serve on at least one trial court roster into a universal mediator directory. We have around 800 uh, mediators on that directory right now, and that's available online, nycourts.gov slash ADR, and it will be part of the written materials accompanying this program, so it can be accessible to this audience, where you could actually select a mediator, and you could select by case type, by judicial district, and we're constantly thinking of ways to enhance the functionality um, of this service. So if you knew that you had a construction accident case that you were thinking of filing, you could go into the directory and look for people who are professing to have that kind of experience, or is it not quite that detailed yet? I, I think you could go in there and it might, I'm not exactly sure if it would flag specifically construction. Uh, it might, it might be more tailored to, you might be able to do a word search because we don't have a construction roster. So you might be able to search for it and see who has identified that as one of their areas of specialty. We could only attest to what roster they're on. So you might have a matrimonial mediator who's on say the Brooklyn uh, roster of matrimonial mediators, but that professional may also say they also handle construction cases. We would only have them identified as being up there for matrimonial, for example. But if you read their bio or you did a search and you found the construction piece, by all means, you, you were free to always select who you want. And you could actually see, um, you could search for a mediator based on both region and um, certain specialties. But the individual search function for each case type, I'm not sure how deep it goes other than kind of a word search. Well, it sounds like if your adversary said, hey, can we use Mediator X, you've now got a way to research that and share the same information in making your decision. Absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. And I certainly commend the link that'll be part of this podcast episode's materials for uh, all of our listeners if they're curious about it. Um, I do want to come back to training because we talked about that a few minutes ago. There obviously is a lot of overlap between the mediator training requirements and CLE, but I know that they're not exactly the same thing. Can you talk about the differences and what people should know? Um, and I also just want to say thank you, by the way, to the State Bar and to the dispute resolution section, because our mediator directory was really supported heavily by a lot of the outreach that the dispute resolution section did in helping us gather that. So I just wanted to really thank uh, the, the section. In terms of CLE and, and Part 146 and training, we have non-attorney mediators and we also have training by non-attorneys. So not every Part 146 approved course is offered by an attorney provider. So unless those, and some of them are outstanding, our judges have gone to those trainings and have really sung the praises of those trainers. So they are outstanding trainers, but if they're not an attorney, they might not, and they're, they're not partnering with an attorney to deliver the training, they may not be offering CLE. So I just, as a, um, I would encourage everybody to just make sure if you are an attorney seeking to attend a mediation training, it's a lot of hours, you might want to check on the CLE piece and on who's offering the training for the CLE portion. 
So the Part 146 guidelines often can be uh, delivered so that they are in a CLE acceptable format. So when the state bar offers their commercial and federal, I'm sorry, their commercial mediation training, they also offer CLE credits. But the numbers may not match up because the 24 hours under Part 146 is, is going to be different than the amount of CLE. You get more CLE because of the 50-minute hour. So they're not perfectly aligned. However, a lot of CLEs that you may have taken can count towards your continuing education uh, requirement as well. So there isn't a need to do a separate training if you've taken uh, ethical issues and settlement negotiations or you've taken um, some of the other programs that we've seen different bar organizations sponsor. Many of those, if they enhance your practice as a neutral or they enhance the subject matter in which you're being asked to mediate and enhance your knowledge in that area, ADR coordinators will likely count that towards satisfying your continuing education requirement. Now, on a very practical level, anyone who's a lawyer in New York State knows full well you're going to get a certificate, and now it's on a uniform document, anytime you finish a CLE course that you get credit for. Is there some similar output that under Part 146 you should have in your possession after taking part of your training there, or is it more honor system? That's a great question. It really is trainer by trainer. So most mediation training providers provide a certificate. Most also mention in their course materials if their course complies with Part 146. So I would make sure to ask at the end of the training or even at the beginning before registering if they are going to get some type of document showing that the course that they took was approved under Part 146. We don't quote unquote certify mediators in New York State. What we do is approve training programs and mediators who have taken those training programs and then get on court rosters are approved to mediate under one of our court rosters. So I have one more question about Part 146, and it's a pretty broad one, but you'll understand why. What resources are on the court's website for those who want to learn more about it and make sure that they're in compliance, not the least of which is keeping track of any changes? So again, that link will be provided as part of this program. It's nycourts.gov slash ADR. And if you go to the training section, um, you will see information about upcoming trainings. And we only post upcoming trainings that are approved under Part 146. So that makes it easier for you. As well as um, we also have listing of approved training course providers. So if you know you wanted to take uh, a certain program, you could check if it's under an approved provider status. And if it isn't, you could always invite them to apply. We'll definitely make sure that that link is in the show notes for everyone to be able to see as well. Um, Lisa, this has been incredibly helpful. I'm sure our listeners will really benefit from hearing everything you've had to say today. Thank you so much for spending some time here. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.